You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Tracy Borman, a name you probably recognize not only because she is a phenomenal author, historian, broadcaster and Joint Chief Curator at Historic Royal Palaces in Great Britain, but also because she joined us in July of 2022 to discuss her book, Crown and Scepter, A New History of the British Monarchy. Today, we are discussing her latest effort, which is eminently readable, will make you smile, and when it comes to the Henry VIII, maybe cringe once or twice. The book is titled Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I the mother and daughter who forever changed British history. Dr. Borman earned her PhD at the University of Hull. She has particular expertise in the 16th century, which is what we'll discuss today, but has also researched and written about the 11th, 17th, and 18th centuries. I love 18th century Britain. I love 18th century history. If I was just smart enough to understand the Enlightenment, I would read about it more. Dr. Borman specializes in Tudor monarchs and their courts courtiers, the private lives of monarchs, and the history of witchcraft. She even got married at the Tower of London, which is a slightly different experience from the women we are going to discuss on today's podcast. Dr. Borman, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for having me back. Well, your books are are so fun to read. I mean, just simply put, you know, a lot of people don't read history because they think it's boring or it's a bunch of dates or any of that sort of stuff. But I wish more people tackled books like yours and they would realize that there's a whole nother side of history out there that's a bit bawdy. It's fun. It's naughty. It's it's courageous and it's unpredictable. 
And that's some of the things that came out of me, came out to me in reading your book. Is it the twists and the turns of this relationship, not only between Anne and Elizabeth, which Elizabeth died, or excuse me, Anne was executed when Elizabeth was very young, but her legacy lived on. But what is such a feature of British history is you're up one day and you're down the next. Yeah. It so is. It's fortune's wheel. You can be at the top, as you say, and then very, very swiftly in Anne Boleyn's case, and she wasn't the only one uh, to lose favour with Henry VIII, you're down and you're suddenly condemned for treason. And I personally believe, and I know I'm not alone in this, that Anne had done nothing wrong except not give Henry that son. And of course, she gets all the blame for that. Nothing to do with Henry. Um, and so, yeah, good old Thomas Cromwell, my old friend, uh, makes up this case of adultery against her. And he makes sure of that case with five men, including incest with her brother, George. So she stands no chance. Um, but and you know, there is your, a- uh, how did your and- friend Thomas Cromwell turn out? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I mean, he, he kind of lasted another four years, but then he found himself walking in Anne's footsteps and maybe even staying in the same apartments that she'd spent <laughs> her final days. So you live by the sword and all that. Yeah. Let's let's give some foundation here uh, for the listeners here on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Most people are familiar with the story of Henry VIII. He had six wives. He had a tumultuous private life is a, a towering figure in terms of Tudor government, British government, um, the war against the church, for lack of a better term, against the Catholic church. So, so laying all that aside, uh, the subtitle of your book is The Mother and Daughter Who Forever Changed British History. So mm-hmm. starting with Anne first, give us a, a little bit about her and how do you think she changed British history? So Anne Boleyn was the daughter of a very ambitious, very successful courtier, Thomas Boleyn. So he was a great favourite with Henry VIII. Not exactly a self-made man, but, you know, the Boleyns aren't the most noble family in England. But he recognises potential in his daughter Anne. He sends her abroad for part of her education. And then she arrives in Henry VIII's court in 1522 when she's in her early 20s about And she really stands out. She's got literally a je ne sais quoi after spending several years in (laughs) France. And she's got this incredible charisma and self-confidence so that even though she's not conventionally beautiful, um, she draws admirers and eventually attracts the attention of Henry VIII himself. Although it's not love at first sight. It takes him four years to notice Anne Boleyn. But then, goodness me, does he make up for lost time um, (laughs) and starts besieging Anne with love letters, begging her to be his mistress. But famously, Anne holds out for a much greater prize, that of being Queen of England. And as you say, in the the process, uh, untold turbulence, Henry has to separate England from Roman Catholic Europe create his own church, grant himself an annulment from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and all for Anne Boleyn. That's why I think she changed history. You know, the Reformation may have eventually happened, but not in such a sudden, violent way. And so 
the religious landscape changed forever, the political landscape as well. She kind of blazed a trail for future Queen's consort who could now play a political role. They're not just there to to give birth, although, of course, ultimately she was (laughs) there for that as well. And she changed history by giving birth to my favourite monarch of all time, Queen Elizabeth I, and what a trailblazer she was as well. And the, and the look on your face, the first time you came on the podcast where I said some of your friends, <coughs> Susanna Lipscomb, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that she was overrated. Oh. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, oh, don't remind me. Don't remind <laughs> me. Uh, I don't think, I, I think your friends, uh, Owen Emerson and Kate oh, McCaffrey yeah. may have said the same thing. We'll have to ask oh. them. Yeah, well, well, we'll see. We'll see. Because Owen and Kate, you know, they, they usually get things right. But, you know, I might have to disagree with them on that. <laughs> and I may be not remembering it uh, exactly right. But it was a fun discussion I had with them on the podcast. And and they came on, I think, rightly because of the fact that you had come on. And we were we were all amazed at your knowledge and recall. We called you a computer. Oh. She, is a com- she is a computer of British, of Tudor history, especially. Well, thanks very much, Robert, for that, because I don't feel like a computer when I literally can't remember what I just went in a shop to buy or <laughs> what I did yesterday. Um, but when it comes to history, yeah, I guess I'm a bit, my memory's a bit better. <laughs> is it is it fair to say that the Bolin family was prominent? You mentioned not noble necessarily, but prominent in England during this time. And Henry had friends there and apparently had a sexual relationship with Anne's sister. Am I remembering this correctly from your book? So he knew who they were. How does he go from sleeping with Anne's sister to courting Anne? Yeah, I know. He's got a thing about the Berlin women. And there was a rumor that he even had an affair with Anne's mother as well, just to complete the set, although Henry always denied that very strenuously. So, yeah, Mary Berlin, I think we can infer she was the more attractive of the two Berlin girls, um, certainly, you know, physically, if not in her character, if that's not being too cruel to Mary. And um yeah, she was the mistress of the King of France, Henry's great rival. So what's good enough for Francis I is good enough for Henry VIII. She then arrives at the English court and quickly becomes Henry VIII's mistress and almost certainly bears him at least one child, uh, Catherine Carey. So she becomes a favourite with Elizabeth I. And um, it's highly likely that she was the daughter of Henry VIII. Uh, she took the surname of Mary Boleyn's husband, William Carey. Um, but then Henry tires of his mistresses very quickly. You know, if, if they agree to be his mistress, then he just loses interest because it's all about the thrill of the chase for Henry. And Anne learns from that. She sees what's happened to her sister. Mm. And that's a big reason why she thinks, no, I think I'm going to hold out for something other than being a mistress. And in fact, I'm not even sure Anne was set on the crown for, from the beginning. I think she probably just wanted to marry somebody else, you know, she, Thomas Percy, and she had, had obviously got some kind of relationship going, um, whether they were betrothed or not. Um, so I, I don't think she really wanted Henry, shocking though that would have been uh, to Henry himself. Um, and of course then it just made her all the more irresistible to this great hunter, Henry VIII. And one of the reasons why she is able to resist him 
either explicitly or implicitly is because Henry happens to be married. Yes. Tell us a little bit about uh, Henry VIII's first marriage, which was to Catherine of Aragon, who was married to Henry's older brother, Arthur. He died shortly after the wedding, as I recall. He didn't live very long. And uh, Henry married her, but they only had one child who lived to adulthood, and that was Mary, known to history as Bloody Mary, which us Catholics believe is just a slur. And (laughs) the race, the need to produce a male heir. Talk to us a little bit first about the, her marriage, his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, but, but also the need, the drive, the obsession to produce a male heir. Mm. So Catherine of Aragon was really an ideal wife in Henry's eyes in every respect but one. It becomes a familiar tale. She didn't give him a son. She had been married to Henry's older brother, Arthur. Um, You're quite right. And Arthur died young. And then Henry, in a very chivalrous fashion, kind of rescued this this damsel in distress. Uh, She didn't have to return to Spain. He married her as one of the first things he did as king in 1509. And actually, they had a very happy marriage. For almost 20 years, um, I'm often asked which of the six was Henry's favourite. And I would say probably Catherine of Aragon. You know, she ticked all the boxes. As I Mm. say, the only problem was she couldn't give him a son. She had a short-lived son uh, called Henry. But sadly, yeah, he died just a few weeks after his birth. And then, you know, it's a a tragic catalogue of of stillbirths and miscarriages. And her only surviving child was the princess Mary, later Queen Mary the first. But um, yeah, so it it all started to unravel really um, for Henry and for Catherine. And it I can't overemphasize the importance of this male heir because we might think now, well, so what? You know, Henry exactly. had a daughter. Yeah. So why not be content with Mary? Well, we would think that today because um, thanks to the late Queen Elizabeth II, women now have equal precedence with men in the royal succession. Um, but the Tudors were still a quite new and fragile dynasty, really. And there were others waiting in the wings who believed they had a better claim to the throne. So Henry had to secure his dynasty with a son. Nothing else would do. You know, women weren't seen as being fit to rule. It wasn't illegal like it was in France, but still it was deeply frowned upon uh, to have a woman on the throne. So Henry was desperate uh, for a male heir. And this really drove pretty much all of his actions as his reign progressed. And through his affairs, he produced at least one son that became prominent, Henry Fitzroy. So he then could say, the problem's not with me, it's with my queen. I can produce a son, why can't she? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Henry Fitzroy was uh, Henry VIII's pride and joy. He made him Duke of Richmond and he made a big fuss of him. And that was for a reason. And as you say, it proved that, you know, problems not with me. I can have a son, must be my wife. And um, interesting, by the way, that Fitzroy uh, ends up at the execution of Anne Boleyn. And I think that's deliberate. I think Henry VIII told him to go there just as a little visual reminder for Anne. You know, I can have sons. It was all your fault. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is historian, author, and 
incredibly generous with her intellect, Dr. Tracy Borman. We are discussing Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I. Her new book, subtitled The Mother and Daughter Who Forever Changed British History. Publishers Weekly, in a starred review, called it rewarding, beautifully envisioned, and full of insight. This is a must-read for Tudor history buffs. The Library Journal deemed it highly recommended for readers interested in British history, royalty, and the Tudor era. Are you gratified by such reviews, or do you oh. realize do you realize that this sort of history just isn't for everyone? Uh-huh. Um, well, of course, I, I realize that this isn't this isn't for everyone. Um, the Tudors, having said that, have this enduring appeal. Um, but I can't tell you how much positive reviews mean to me. They're they're amazing, you know, because you write you write this book and you spend months, sometimes years, researching, and it's quite a solitary thing. And you're writing and researching, thinking, is anybody actually going to read this and and kind of get it and enjoy it? And then when you get a, a nice review, and there've been some lovely ones in in the states, um, it it means everything, you know. And and also not just from reviewers, but um, from just readers, you know, and and uh, hopefully listeners to your podcast and um, people who tweet me, and and I absolutely love it, and I'm just endlessly grateful uh, to that to those people. But no, absolutely, I'm not. I'm not so um, so blinded by the Tudors that I can't see that they're, they're not everybody's cup of tea. Um, in fact, history isn't full stop. Um, so, you know, it's, it, people have different interests. Of course they do. Uh, but all I can do is, is try and share my passion and um, and what I've discovered and, and just hope that, that it resonates with people. Because Anne Boleyn in particular is a very modern woman. I don't know if that's why she's the most popular of the six wives, but... She's not a conventional 16th century woman who's prepared to be a second class citizen. She's got opinions and she wants power. So that was that was something that came out in your book. And I don't remember exactly how you phrased it. So correct me here, but I think I'm going to get it right. Mostly that that the putting the physical qualities aside and the sexual desire and all that, but that the qualities in her personality that attracted Henry when he was pursuing her, repelled him once he captured her. Quite right. Very neatly put. Yes, exactly. So he loved her feistiness and that she argued with him and uh, that she was kind of high-handed and hard to get and all the rest of it. But then as soon as they were married, he expected her to be like Catherine of Aragon was and to be compliant and the typical passive Tudor wife. And of course she wasn't, she carried on arguing with him. And now that lost all appeal because, you know, they were sleeping together. Henry no longer had to pursue her. And that's when really the scales seemed to fall from his eyes. And he just thought, what, what, what have I done? What have I done? What have I married? But if she'd had that son, uh, she would have been forever protected. There's no way Henry would have got rid of Anne Boleyn uh, if she'd given him that that healthy boy that he so desired. And what exactly was Anne Boleyn doing when she caught Henry VIII's eye? For whom was she working? 
Ah, indeed, Catherine of Aragon. So it's it's all very tight knit. I think we can <laughs> say, you know, yeah. So um, Anne's father has had managed to secure his daughter Anne a position in Catherine's household. So talk about an uncomfortable arrangement. You know, that there's one scene described by a courtier of how the three of them are playing cards. You know, imagine the atmosphere, you know, Henry and his his kind of great love, Anne Boleyn, playing cards with Henry's wife, Catherine. And, oh, you could have cut that atmosphere with a knife, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, Anne is quite vicious, I have to say, towards Catherine. I think Catherine's actually quite dignified in this whole affair. But, uh, but Anne, I think, born of insecurity, you know, she's constantly trying to get what Catherine has. So down to kind of getting the best rooms at court or, you know, even removing Catherine's um, arms, royal arms from from the decoration of her rooms. So, you know, she's she's not always admirable, is Anne, even though, you know, I've got huge admiration for her as a whole. She's she can be quite vicious. You mentioned earlier about sharing your your passion. And obviously you didn't say this, so I'm going to say this. You're you're brilliance it's it's so entertaining oh you're very welcome it's so entertaining not only to get a chance to talk to you that's a that's a real treasure but to read your books what did you one of the things is now that i've done so many of these uh, podcast interviews with historians of all sorts of history and as someone who wrote a master's thesis, right, that's like 100 pages, and I thought it was the end of the world. <laughs> the thing that really strikes me is the amount of research that goes into these books. It's just you just wonder what in the hell this person did, in your case, you did for a year or two years or three years, other than sitting in some dingy record hall, looking up birth certificates and divorce records and all that stuff. Talk to the audience, please, A, about what goes into a book like this. And as an acknowledged expert in the time period, did you learn anything new through your research for this book? Mm, Absolutely. Well, I have to say that for me, the research is the most fun part uh, of the whole process. I absolutely love uh, delving around in in archives. And what I do um, when I'm writing a book is I kind of start out by reading a couple of the the sort of modern works. So secondary sources, as they're called, you know, about history books, about the subject, just to get a general steer. But then straight away, I go to the original archival sources. And where possible, I actually look at the original documents rather than a digital version or a transcription, because you find out so much more. The Victorians were great at cataloging, transcribing uh, Tudor documents, but they missed out a lot in the process. They missed out things that they thought were irrelevant, but it's those details that I honed in on, the kind of domestic, the personal. And yes, I absolutely found things out that really surprised me. I mean, when I started this process, I have to be honest, um, I was thinking, is there going to be enough for a book here? You know, uh, Elizabeth is is less than three years old when Anne is executed. How much can we possibly know about their relationship? And then I ended up with an embarrassment of riches. And (laughs) as ever, some of the most intriguing documents 
were the ones that sound the driest. So account books, inventories. They told me what Anne was spending her money on, mostly her daughter, but also the possessions of Anne that Elizabeth chose to keep. Because when Anne was executed, all of her goods, her wealthy goods went to the king and they they remained in his possession, those that he didn't destroy. And then when he died, all of his possessions were kind of divided up between his children. And of course, Edward, as the boy, got first choice, then Mary, then Elizabeth. But and Elizabeth did not go for any high value items. She went for items associated with her late mother, Anne. And it's such a telling way of how she honoured her mother, how loyal she felt to Anne, even though she could have had hardly any memories of her. So, yeah, you learn a lot from those from those kind of fairly dry sounding documents. And it's a joy for me to go through them all. When are Henry and Anne married? They get married in January 1533. They may have actually gone through a form of betrothal earlier than that. Uh, They sail over to France towards the end of the previous year to get the King of France's approval for their for their impending marriage. And uh, why did they need that? Well, they didn't actually need it officially. Uh, This was PR, basically. If one of the most powerful leaders in the world gives his approval, kind of, and all he has to do is really just to allow them into his court, and then that's a sign that he approves of Anne Boleyn, Um, then that speaks volumes because Anne Boleyn is seen as this, well, she's called the concubine, the great whore by the rest of Europe. Um, And so if the King of France agrees to receive her at his court, then suddenly her status goes up several notches and it's taken as approval for the marriage. Uh, So that's why that's why Henry and Anne do this. And of course, Anne has an association with France, having spent several years there in her youth. So certainly whether or not they're betrothed um, before or just before that that voyage or indeed when they when they land back in Dover, they're sleeping together pretty quickly uh, because Anne is already pregnant by the time they marry in January 1533. Hence the need for a rush, because actually Henry's annulment hasn't come through yet and it doesn't come through <laughs> until May 1533. We tend to overlook that fact that he's a bit of a bigamist for a while. And then the annulment comes through in May and Anne is crowned in June and very, very visibly pregnant by then. When is Elizabeth born? 7th of September. So uh, in August 1533, Anne and Henry sailed to Greenwich. That's the palace appointed for the birth. Henry himself was born there. Sadly, it's one of those lost Tudor palaces. Mm. And um, everything looked like it was going according to plan. And Anne started her labour on the 7th and, and it progressed fairly quickly and fairly well. And it resulted in a healthy child who would be the glory of the Tudor dynasty. But that child, of course, was a girl. So not quite the plan that Henry had envisaged. Now, it's easy, isn't it, with hindsight to say that that's basically the beginning of the end. Well, it wasn't uh, because Anne had proved that she could have a healthy child. But it was certainly a major setback. And it was a huge disappointment to Henry, who tactlessly remarked, well, never mind, boys will follow when he first went to see his newborn daughter. So, yeah, it was 
it, it was crushing for Henry, I think. And how did it affect Anne? Very differently. And this was another surprising thing for me in that no hint whatsoever of disappointment, nothing but a very, very strong maternal bond, you see. And, and I mean, I say in my book, and I don't want this to, to sound crass, but I say, you know, Anne is not an obviously maternal woman. Here's a woman who's who's kind of more at home in the political arena than the mm. royal nursery. And yet Elizabeth's birth changes all of that. And she can't uh, give Elizabeth enough affection. She showers her with presents. She has a, a velvet cushion made to place next to her throne so Elizabeth can be with her at all times. Um, and she's bereft when Elizabeth, like all royal infants, gets sent away at the age of just three months uh, and is set up in her own household uh, at Hatfield. And Anne hardly sees her then because she's got work to do. Uh, she needs to produce another heir. And she's pregnant three months after Elizabeth's birth you know that she, she's definitely under pressure now and so as a mom how do you feel about that like oh. leave me can you leave me alone for a while yeah I know I know absolutely I think it's devastating the idea that your baby would just be sent away I have to say my daughter was a terrible sleeper so I'd have probably welcomed that when if <laughs> when she was three months in just take her away for a while and then uh, but I think I'd have pretty soon missed her and wanted to go get her so yeah it was you do a, ter- a really interesting, a terrific job describing in your book the process of a royal birth. It, ah. is, it is meticulous and traditional and yeah. odd. I can't Damn think right of another weird. word for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> please, please talk about what Anne would have went through as, as, a, as a royal woman preparing to give birth. Yeah. So thanks to Lady Margaret Beaufort, this this great matriarch of the Tudor dynasty, the mother of Henry VII, grandmother of Henry VIII, she set down these ordinances or rules for a royal birth. And uh, as you say, very detailed, very strict. So the royal wife could only be served by women, no men allowed in the birthing chamber. For a month, she had to go into seclusion, a month before the birth served only by women, no natural light allowed in. Fires had to be lit in every room. Remember, this is August. You know, even even in England, it's pretty hot in August. So uh, it must have been quite stifling. And then then it all gets weird. There's things like you have to tie the skin (laughs) of an ox around the thigh of the labouring woman, uh, and then that'll ensure a healthy birth. And, of course, lots of religious rituals as well. And... um, you know, all of this must have really just ramped up the tension, I think, in that birthing chamber. It must have been a suffocating environment. The theory is uh, that all of this was to create a womb-like environment, you know, the dark, the heat. Um, but, yeah, talk about just piling on the pressure for poor Anne. One of the things that you you just said a few minutes ago and came through in your book is it it could be said or it could be asserted that Anne, given this is the 16th century, let's throw that in there, could have rejected Elizabeth, been resentful. You know, Mm -hmm. hey, you screwed up everything, Liz. What the hell are you doing? I needed a son. And there's absolutely no evidence of that at all. No, not at all. And uh, the opposite is the case. There's no sense of resentment um, ever. 
Uh, and Anne is always trying to promote her daughter's interests, make sure that she is, you know, attended by the best people, that she is given all the honour due to her as, you know, she is now heir to the throne, even though she's she's just a girl. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think this speaks volumes about this very strong bond that develops from birth between mother and daughter. And even though Elizabeth has her, her father's flame red hair, her features are all Anne's. She looks very, very much like Anne Boleyn, from what we can tell from the surviving sure. portraits. And and Elizabeth is the heir because Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon was annulled. Yes. So then Mary, who was their daughter, is now no longer in the succession. Correct. Yes, exactly. So this is uh, the annulment, uh, as you say, that results really in Princess Mary being illegitimate because if her parents' marriage wasn't valid, then, yeah, she she is not legitimate. She has no right to the throne. What I love um, is that when Elizabeth comes to the throne and people are questioning her legitimacy, she's presented with this family tree that she almost certainly commissioned. And this family tree uh, refers to Anne Boleyn as the first wife of Henry VIII. So, you know, Catherine of Aragon airbrushed from history. She didn't exist. She wasn't the lawful wife. Anne Boleyn was the first lawful wife of Henry VIII. Did Elizabeth and Catherine of Aragon ever meet? No, no, there's no no record of that um, because Catherine had been banned from court uh, well before Elizabeth's uh, birth. And, uh, you know, even Catherine's daughter, Mary, wasn't allowed to visit her. So, no, um, I, I do think, uh, you know, this is a subject for another podcast probably, but, but um, really interesting to look at the relationship between Elizabeth and Mary. Yes, uh, you took my daughters. next question. Yeah, who who should have just hated each other, and and certainly it was tricky their relationship later on. But actually, to Mary's credit, she seems to have been quite affectionate towards Elizabeth, particularly after Anne's execution, and she sort of took her under her wing a bit. She was much older than Elizabeth, um, and and actually there was a great deal of affection between those two sisters, even though their mothers had been sworn enemies. Beautifully detailed in your book, that relationship. Yes, yes. Please come back on and let's discuss yes, that. Please. I'm, yes, I'm a please. big fan of Mary the First. Uh, oh, uh, maybe, maybe it's my Roman uh, allegiances, but I think she's been a bit maligned with her <laughs> yes. nickname. Yes. Let's, let's fast forward just a bit. Uh, in between the time of Elizabeth's birth and Anne's execution, what leads to Anne's falling out of favor? Is there anything other than the failure to produce a male heir that you as a historian would consider legitimate grounds for Anne's execution? No legitimate grounds at all. No, I would say. But um, her fall is 90 percent due to uh, her failure to produce a male heir. Um, But then there is the Thomas Cromwell factor as well um because <laughs> so thomas cromwell being henry viii's chief minister right-hand man henchman as he's often called uh so he and Anne start out as allies but they soon become enemies and they fall out over the dissolution of the monasteries 
And uh, what Cromwell wants and what he gets is to divert all of the riches from the monasteries to the crown. What Anne wants is for those riches to go to charitable causes. So she's quite a social reformer. And now this might seem like, you know, well, not a small point of difference, but, you know, something they can talk through, but it it divides them. And that proves deadly for Anne, because now not only is Henry rapidly cooling off from Anne, but his chief minister has got reason to have Anne in his sights. He wants her out of the way. And she's told Cromwell, I want to see your head off your shoulders. So it becomes a battle to the death between these awful figures at the Tudor court. And Cromwell is never one to back the wrong horse. He knows that Anne is losing Henry's favour. So he gives Henry a way out. I think he, he, you know, he does devise the whole adultery case. But there are no legitimate grounds to bring Anne to court at all. She might have been a flirt. She had a lot of male attention. Didn't go further than that. But she was a unabashed flirt. Yeah. Yeah. And she was perhaps a little unguarded in some of the things that she said, particularly to Henry Norris, where this is what really helped condemn her when, you know, she sort of asked him why he wasn't married yet. And, you know, basically hinting, are you really in love with me? And you look to dead men's shoes. In other words, you're waiting till the king dies and then you can marry me. Now, if if she said that, that was that was pretty foolish because even talking of the king's death, it was treason. And now Cromwell twists this into a plot between Norris and Anne to murder the king. Um, and it's it's all just gossip and hearsay. But yeah, it's kind of enough. How shocked was Anne as the process started for her trial, downfall and trial? Deeply shocked. Like she knew something was happening a few days before her arrest in May 1536, but she hadn't got a clue what was coming. And, you know, she demanded to know the charges and, and th- there was this lack of information that, that they still were were preparing the case against her when, when she was arrested. And she was deeply shocked and, and her composure did kind of crumble when she reached the tower and she became almost hysterical as you would. Um, but then then that famed courage of hers comes through and she's remarkable in the way she defends herself, uh, you know, tries to find out what's going on. Um, and she's pretty unshakable uh, in, in the face of this horror that is unfolding all around her. Did she ever think she could survive it? either in terms of her life or things going back to status quo ante? Yeah, I think she did. You know, I think um, I think Anne wasn't alone in believing that Henry VIII wasn't going to go through with this, that it was just, a, you know, he was just teaching her a lesson because there's a sense of people being unprepared at the tower, even the constable of the tower, Sir William Kingston, you know, nobody's thought about a coffin for Anne, uh, so mm. that when she's beheaded, she's that they have to kind of go into the royal into the armory, and and get an old arrow chest and and bury Anne in that. And you know, there are all these mishaps on the day of Anne's execution that suggest that you know people think, yeah, he's not going to go through with it. And Anne 
when she's making her way to the scaffold, apparently is forever looking around her. You know, where's the, where's the messenger with this royal pardon? You know, Henry's leaving it late, but he's not going to do this. And then really it's only, I think, moments before that she, she realizes this is this is real now. And what about the last sweet act of kindness of Henry VIII when it came oh. to Anne's execution? He, he was such so <laughs> so touching. Go ahead. <laughs> I know what a guy, what a guy Henry VIII was uh, as as a very touching kind of parting gesture. He orders a swordsman from Calais uh, because the axe is you know more often used for executions, but it's a bit unreliable. It can take two or three blows, if not more, to sever a head. Sword much swifter, therefore much kinder. In Henry's eyes, he was doing Anne a real service here. So uh, he went to a great deal of trouble. But what we know is because this guy comes from Calais, Henry ordered him before Anne had even stood trial. So talk about a foregone conclusion. Did, did Catherine Howard get the axe? She got the axe. Yeah, Man, he didn't wait. go to that. Catherine Howard. <laughs> you are listening to <laughs> Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise. And sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Dr. Tracy Borman, author of Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, The Mother and Daughter Who Forever Changed British History. Those of us who have been to the Tower of London and we see the glass pillow that's supposed to represent Anne's place of execution. Isn't that correct? Even though they're not really sure where it took place. Yeah, that's right. Where is Anne buried? Yeah, so Anne is buried in the chapel of St. Peter ad vincula inside uh, the Tower, along with Cromwell, by the way. He joined her there four years later. Thomas More was laid to rest there. It's like the who's who of Tudor England. Uh, (laughs) All of those... uh, those kind of convicted traitors uh, were were laid to rest there in that actually quite beautiful chapel. Uh, it's where I got married. It is beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's it's stunning. Um, and uh, and we do know actually that the spot of Anne's execution we haven't got it right. Where we tell visitors that you know, as you say, there's that glass monument. Uh, it actually wasn't there. Um, uh, it was right next to the White Tower, so that famous kind of central keep in the Tower of London. Uh, just outside the, the jewel house where the crown jewels are kept. That's where Anne was executed. So her daughter, Elizabeth, three years old when Anne is executed. What about her relationship with Henry VIII as she starts to grow up? Henry marries Jane Seymour next. They have mm-hmm. a son who becomes Edward the Sixth. Yes, Correct. And Jane Seymour dies shortly yep. after childbirth. Yep. He then mm-hmm. marries Anne of Cleves, which doesn't last very long. And I, is that what brings down Cromwell is the Anne of Cleves? It, it doesn't help. It's not the only factor, but it certainly doesn't help. Then he marries Catherine Howard, who's a bit of a, uh, uh, she's a friendly lady. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. And she is executed. Yeah. Then he marries Catherine Parr, who uh, survives him. Yeah, correct. 
how is Elizabeth treated during this time? And how does Elizabeth interact with her father, Henry VIII? So Elizabeth is pretty much an outcast after Anne Boleyn's execution. Henry forgets all about her or tries to. She's sent away to a succession of kind of houses in the country. And Henry doesn't like any reminder of her, particularly because she looks so much like Anne Boleyn. It's thanks to Catherine Parr, uh, the, the last of Elizabeth's many stepmothers, that she is eventually kind of welcomed back to court uh, and uh, restored to the order of succession, even though she has been declared illegitimate because uh, Henry and Anne's uh, marriage had also been annulled. She is actually restored to the line of succession. Um, and that's all thanks to Catherine Parr. Otherwise, she shares some of her education with her baby brother, Edward. Uh, and she also, as I said, spends time with Mary. And so things are settled for Elizabeth. They become a bit more settled, a bit less turbulent, but still she's keenly aware that her status has taken a bit of a blow. Um, you know, the contrast when Anne Boleyn was alive, she was always ordering these beautiful clothes for Elizabeth. And then just a few months after Anne's execution, one of Elizabeth's household is having to write to Cromwell saying, look, Elizabeth's outgrown all her clothes. She needs clothes. You know, you, you need to send some supplies because she's been forgotten about by Henry. And I think if it hadn't been for Catherine Parr, she'd have been forgotten about permanently. Elizabeth in public, um, you know, she's got nothing but good to say about Henry, even though he's done this to her mother. But she's a political animal. She knows what she's doing. And you can't discredit the king, your father. And also Elizabeth likes to remind people, I am Henry VIII's daughter. You know, I have a right to the throne. So, of course, she's going to speak positively about him. But when you look at her actions, not her words, they're all about Anne Boleyn. They're all about trying to rehabilitate her mother's reputation. Is, is it true that, forgive me if I don't remember this correctly from the book, but they Elizabeth and Henry would go years without seeing each other or just months? Oh, no, it could, it could be almost a year. Uh, I mean, there's only sort of... Um, you know, I, I guess a relatively brief time, but it um, there's sort of, so Anne's executed 1536, Henry dies 11 years after that. I think years is probably accurate. It's never entirely clear exactly where Elizabeth is when, but we tend to hear about it when she sees Henry. And we're talking just a handful of references to that. So yeah, it probably is years. Henry dies in 1547. How long had it been was Elizabeth present when he died? And if not, how long had they not seen each other before Henry's death? So Elizabeth wasn't present uh, and neither was Henry's last wife, Catherine Parr, or any of the children. In fact, he he had a very, very private death. Um, so uh, we know Elizabeth was at court three years before that or two and a half years before that when Catherine Parr was regent for Henry, uh, when he went on this kind of last gasp uh, campaign for military glory in France, um, and he left Catherine to run the show. And she invited Elizabeth to to come with her and and you know hold court uh, with her. Um, but then the records dry up a bit in terms of you know when else Elizabeth might have seen her father. It's possible that they were both briefly at the the Christmas celebrations in 1546, but Henry didn't stick around for very long at those because he was clearly very, very sick. Uh, so he kind of retreated to Whitehall Palace almost on his own, just three people to attend him. 
And besides perhaps her, her intrinsic benevolence, is it fair to say Catherine Parr could be generous to the three children? Yeah. Not because she was under no pressure to produce an heir. Yeah, uh, that's probably true. I mean, th- there were faint hopes of an heir, but I think no, everybody knew that wasn't going to happen. Um, she could be, you know, she she had the luxury of being able to be uh, benevolent, but I think she deserves a lot of credit for how she treats all of her stepchildren. And she's she's very fair. She doesn't kind of favour one over the other um, because the political thing to do would have been to give all the attention to Edward, future king. But she pays at least as much attention to Henry's daughters. Um, and, yeah, she tries to kind of be a force for unity in the royal family. And that's much needed, I think. And Edward and Elizabeth were Protestant. Yes. And Mary was Catholic. And so that could have certainly have been a way for Queen Catherine Parr to separate the family out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Henry, Henry dies in 1547. Edward the Sixth dies in 1553. Correct. Yeah. Then Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, dies in 1558. Yeah. And you've got Lady Jane Grey briefly in between those two. But did you, did you hear that, Dr. Tallis? Did you hear that? Yes. Lady <laughs> Jane Grey. She should be on the, the role of uh, British monarchs. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Nicholas told me off about that before. So I always make sure to stay. <laughs> So how was Elizabeth treated during those reigns, those two brief reigns, Henry or Edward VI and Mary Tudor? Because as you mentioned a few minutes ago, they had a great relationship, Mary and Elizabeth. Then it got a little sideways, a little tricky there when Mary became queen. Yeah, it it certainly got tricky. Elizabeth had had a fairly reasonable time of it under Edward. Uh, There was the whole Thomas Seymour scandal um, when she, you know, it was rumoured she'd had an affair with Catherine Parr's husband, new husband, Thomas Seymour. But apart from that, she and Edward got along very well. Not so Elizabeth and Mary. They had been affectionate, as I mentioned, but now Mary was queen. That religious divide really drove the sisters apart. Um, And Mary saw Elizabeth as a threat because she probably was actually, not deliberately, but she became this figurehead for all of those who were opposed to Mary. And so kind of the Protestant half of the country, if you like, who didn't want Mary to return us to to the Roman Catholic fold. So that's when things got quite hairy for Elizabeth. And she ended up in the Tower of London on suspicion of, of plotting against her sister. And she was kept in Anne Boleyn's apartments for good measure and, you know, eventually released but they waited until the 19th of May, 1554, to release her. Just a bit of psychological torture there, I think. They waited until the anniversary of her mother's execution. How did Elizabeth become Queen of England on the death of Queen Mary? Well, I think Mary would have avoided it if she could, but she had no children and She'd seen firsthand what happens if you try to alter the succession away from the next legitimate heir because that had happened with Lady Jane Grey. Didn't end well for poor Jane. So Mary, pretty much on her deathbed, named Elizabeth her heir, but kind of begged her to uphold the Catholic faith. And I think Elizabeth said, yeah, of course, I'll do that. And then (laughs) (laughs) had no intention of doing that at all. Um, So, yeah, she became queen in November 1558. Finally. 
after all the twists and turns of fortune, uh, Elizabeth was finally on the throne. We have a few more minutes on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Dr. Tracy Borman, author of Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, the mother and daughter who forever changed British history. But Elizabeth, this is in the podcast I did with Kate and Owen from Ever Castle, which I went to go see uh, several ah. months ago, and it's absolutely beautiful. I did not wear my uh, divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, survived T-shirt for this interview <laughs> as much as I wanted to. So Elizabeth remains unmarried, a virgin, virgin with a capital V. Yeah. We talked at the beginning of the podcast about this need to produce an heir, specifically a male heir. Did Elizabeth not feel that same pressure? She did, but I think she had learned from her predecessor's example. You know, she, who do I marry? If I marry somebody from overseas like Mary did, that will spark rebellion. If I marry a homegrown candidate, that could spark civil war. But I think there was more to it than that for Elizabeth. As she famously said, I will have but one mistress here and no master. She was very much her mother's daughter. She didn't want a man bossing her around. Uh, she'd waited this long for the crown and she was going to enjoy it. But of course, that did condemn her father's dynasty to extinction. And there is a theory that she did that deliberately uh, to avenge her mother's mm. death. Interesting theory. I'm not sure she would have gone that far. I think she was too pragmatic for that. Uh, but it, you know, it did have the effect of of serving sweet revenge for Anne Boleyn. But but who? But James the First, who becomes King of England in 1603, he's Henry VIII's nephew. Yeah. So, yeah. So he could have become a Tudor king had he, I mean, he was the grandson of Henry yeah. the seventh. I mean, if he had chosen to, but yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it was, it was, um, you're right. It was the, it was the sort of, it was the beginning of the Stuarts, the end of the Tudors, but you know, um, there was still a fair bit of Tudor blood in there. Um, well, Henry VIII, it was slightly uncertain whether James would would take the throne because Henry VIII had actually made a will barring his Scottish relatives from the English throne. He hated Scotland. He was a great rival with the King of Scots. Um, but really, James was Elizabeth's clo closest blood relative, so she, she didn't really have that much of a choice. And he was Protestant. Yeah, exactly. Right religion. Bit of bit of Tudor blood, yeah, that'll do. How did Elizabeth honor her her mother as has her reign progressed? She reigned for forty five years, so you can understand at the beginning of the reign. I mean, Anne hadn't been dead for too long. I mean, twenty years when yeah. Elizabeth yeah. comes, but now when you get into the seventeen, the fifteen seventies and eighties and nineties, did she maintain that you know uh, daughter devotion? Yes, she absolutely did. It ramped up as the rain went on. One of the earliest things she did as queen was to appoint Boleyns. She filled her court with Boleyns, both her male advisors and the women who served her in private. Basically, it was hard, pretty much impossible to get a job at Elizabeth's court unless you had some kind of, you know, <laughs> relationship to uh, to Anne Boleyn, whether it, you were it was a blood relationship or or a friendship, um, whatever it may be. But then Elizabeth becomes 
less and less discreet about her mother as her reign goes on. At first, she's very much the political pragmatist. She's not going to make a song and dance about it because she knows half her kingdom see her as illegitimate. So she can't make a big fanfare about Anne Boleyn. But she does more as the reign progresses, surrounding herself with Anne's emblems, the white falcon in particular. Um, Her courtiers soon realise this is a good way to win favour with Elizabeth. So they start displaying Anne Boleyn's emblems and her portraits. This is when pretty much all of Anne Boleyn's portraits date from uh, is Elizabeth's reign. Um, And... Uh, Yes. And she writes about her mother. She mentions her mother, um, adopts her mother's um, motto, uh, semper eadem, or always the same. And right to the end, really, her funeral procession uh, is is bedecked with with her mother's emblems and even her tomb in Westminster Abbey. There's a falcon on that as well. So, yeah. Forgive me. Are there reports of Elizabeth visiting Anne's tomb or trying to? make it more ostentatious? No, there aren't. And people thought they that she would have her mother reburied mm-hmm. uh, in the same way that James I later would with, with Mary, Queen of Scots, um, interring her in Westminster Abbey. But I think Elizabeth was was very conscious that she'd be literally dust if she did that at the beginning of her reign. Um, because, as I say, drawing attention to the fact she's Anne's daughter and Anne is so controversial. Um, so she chose not to do that. But she definitely honoured her in in more practical ways. Um, and as I say, I think probably the strongest indicator is 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 that you know all of the Boleyn relatives she she appointed. But I can't not mention the Checkers Ring because this is such a poignant piece of evidence for Elizabeth's feelings towards Anne. This ring that's named after the British Prime Minister's country residence, Checkers House, and it's a locket ring owned by Elizabeth from the 1570s that opens to reveal the portraits of two women. One is Elizabeth and the other is almost certainly Anne Boleyn. You know, there's some controversy around that. But Elizabeth treasured this locket ring and kept it with her until the day she died. A lot of many mothers of monarchs have lived long into their uh, son or daughter's reign. Most recently, the Queen Mother, I think, lived like 49 years or something like that into Elizabeth II's reign. Give us Anne Boleyn's thoughts on Queen Elizabeth I. Oh, would she have been proud or what? Uh, She would have been triumphant because Elizabeth was able to do what Anne would have done if she lived longer. She was this icon of of female power. She wielded authority over a court filled with men. She changed minds about women's position in society and confounded every expectation about herself as a female monarch. People thought she would make a mess of it, as other queens had done before her. By the end of her long reign, she'd made England fall in love with queens and later queens benefited from that. So I think Anne would have been inordinately proud of her daughter. I do think, though, somebody once asked me, you know, what if Anne 
uh, had had lived and as you say become uh, you know a matriarch in Elizabeth's reign how do you think they'd have got on <laughs> and i think sparks would would have flown between <laughs> these two women because that you know they're both quite fiery so I'm, i don't think it would have uh, always been harmonious but um yeah i i wish anne had known the triumph uh, that she would enjoy through her daughter elizabeth May I ask one more question before we end the podcast on a completely different topic? Uh, It's been just recent that England had its first coronation in 70 years. Uh, A lot of us watched it on television and read the articles and and everything about it. You were involved as uh, as someone, as an expert. What was it like as as a Brit, if I may use that term, to, to actually, and as a historian, watch a coronation in person as opposed to you know the the films and the pictures of years gone by you know robert it was it was fascinating because you know as you know because we chatted about it my book crown and scepter um thousand years i wrote i wrote the full history of the monarchy so i knew what to expect i've written about many coronations and they all follow the same plan you know the anointing and the crowning and all the words that would be said and yet somehow it came as a total surprise as i was watching it it's like ah oh, this really does happen you know <laughs> uh, and it it was just surreal to see it being played out in front of my eyes and i could hardly even bear to blink I thought i am watching a sovereign being crowned live for the first time and actually that was the experience shared by most people around the world you know 70 years is a long reign so it it was it was new for most of us but extraordinary what a moment you have been listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies an indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by garmon construction leaders and legends llc the grand hall and conference center at historic union station the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Dr. Tracy Borman, author of Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, the mother and daughter who forever changed British history. If you want your opinion as a listener, to this podcast to forever be changed about British history. Read books from Tracy Borman. Thank you, Dr. Borman, for coming on. It's always a pleasure. You're so generous with your time. Your books are wonderful. And I just, I have to say this, I just love talking with you. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.